0: Our scripture reading today will be from Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. Exodus 32, 1 through 14. This is the word of God. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation made proclamation, and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them? In the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people remember Abraham Isaac and Israel your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The grass grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: All right, thanks, Lynn. Well, uh, in 1988, George H.W. Bush famously said, Read my lips, no new taxes. Uh, It was a bold statement. Uh, and ultimately one that he was not able to fulfill. Uh, at the time, he was running against Michael Dukakis, and he was trying to separate himself. Uh, Michael Dukakis had said that he would only raise taxes as a last resort, and so, so Bush was trying to say, no, no, this is, I'm for real. I'm really not going to do it. Um, some say this, and, you know, ended up he had, had to raise taxes. There were new taxes. And, and some say this is the reason, uh, or at least one of the reasons, he might not have won or been reelected. In, in 92. And, and probably looking back, uh, uh, George Bush probably wished he, he hadn't have made that comment because he couldn't fulfill it. And this is somewhat similar to what the Israelites did with the book of the covenant that we looked at last week. When they got the Ten Commandments, they, they told God, God, read my lips. We will do all that you have spoken and commanded. And that went really great for them for about 30 seconds, right? And look, perhaps you've had moments like this. Uh, you've made a commitment, you're going to start working out. You're going to eat right. And then dinner comes, right? And you, and you don't keep the commitment. Uh, maybe maybe you, you're prone to make commitments to God. And you've made these commitments and only just see yourself fail time after time again. And often for us, the problem isn't that we, we don't know what we should do. The problem is in the actual doing it, Right? last week we saw that Israel agreed to obey everything in the covenant. This included the Ten Commandments. And what we see now in chapter 32 is that almost as soon as they committed to this covenant, they broke it. And, and that's what I want to consider today. I want to, look at, I want to have, uh, consider three observations of how Israel broke covenant with God. All right. First, they broke covenant with God immediately. They got right to it. Second, they broke covenant with God by using God's gifts. And then third, they broke covenant with God in a way they thought was justifiable. So first, Israel broke covenant with God immediately. Israel miraculously makes it out of Egypt, and their first stop is Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, God descends. There is smoke, fire, thunder, and lightning Uh, He gives Moses the Ten Commandments, which is recorded in the Book of the Covenant. And the people say, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The first two commands are to have no other gods and not to make any idols or images of God. So Moses gives the people these laws, the Book of the Covenant, then he goes back up the mountain to meet with God. But he takes longer than uh, Israel expected. And so what do they do? They get busy breaking the first two commandments. They make a golden calf and in verse four, they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So Israel, great job keeping the commandments for about 30 seconds, right? I mean, the first chance they get, they break the first two commandments and it might even have been the the command to not make any idols that, that gave them the idea, let's make a golden calf. That makes sense. And look, we are born with a sinful nature that we never actually quite get get rid of. And there can be some progress, but we are born with this nature that that has us to, to flinch at commands and to almost do the opposite. Many of us parents can tell stories about kids responding this way. At some point, they understand what you're communicating, don't do this. And we've all seen them do it. As soon as they understand what we want, they do it. And I'm going to be super gracious and not tell any stories about my kids. It's not because I don't have any stories. And if I tell a story without their permission, I owe money. So I can't afford it either. Um, But but the the same can be said of me when I was a kid and when I'm 42, right? We just tend to flinch at commands. The Scripture teaches this about our sinful nature. We do not respond well with being told what to do. I was at a conference years ago. Uh, and the speaker was teaching on this. And kind of abruptly in the sermon, he said, all right, everybody stand up, stand up, stand up. I sat down. And so then he said, okay, everybody can sit down. And he's just like, I did that just to make everybody mad. He said, most of y'all despise me for doing it. And, most, and a lot of y'all didn't stand up. And I was the one that didn't stand up. And so we just flinch with demands and commands. We don't like it. It's part of our sinful nature. And especially even as Americans. I mean, one of our values is freedom, right? You can't tell me what to do. Well, I mean, freedom is almost like a Ten Commandment. It's like it's something that we cherish highly. And I'm not saying we shouldn't cherish it. I'm just saying that it's part of our flinching against having commands or demands. And sometimes we don't really have a good idea of what a king is. There are usually maybe two different extremes. It could be like a, a king is like an evil dictator or just like this passive grandfather-like like figure that really doesn't put anything on you, just wants everybody to have a, a good time at the end of the day. So... We have this allergic reaction to commands. We flinch at it. Now, turn to Romans 7, and I want to consider what Paul has said about this sin nature that we have as it relates to God's commands on us. So turn to Romans chapter 7, I want to look at verse 5, and keep in mind, God gave them the, the, the book of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, first two commands, don't have any other gods, don't make any idols. They get together, what should we do, fellas? Let's make another God, right? So Romans chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So what aroused our sinful passions? The law is what arouses our sinful passions. Isn't that counterintuitive, right? So it's the law that actually arouses the sinful passions. We are born into the world with an allergy towards commands, towards being told what to do. And some things we don't even want to do until we're commanded to not to do it. Look a little bit further in Romans chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. It says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. Verse eight, but sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. What is it that produced covetousness in Paul? It was this, the command, do not covet. That's what made Paul covetous. I mean, he had a sinful nature in there, but that's what aroused covetousness within him. Are you seeing this in the text? Like, I'm not just talking crazy here. There's the command to do something and that arouses our sinful passions to go against that command. This is the sinful nature that we're working with. So do you want to change? Do you yourself want to change? Is there somebody in your life you desire to see them change? Should you heap the law on them? no like that's going to make them do the opposite it's going to have the opposite effect and maybe if you flinch at what i just said maybe you're operating more out of the old covenant than the new covenant maybe your hope is found more in just getting the laws we'll just get the information there than getting jesus there and the gospel there maybe you need to understand our sinful nature a bit better and that heaping the law on people will not change their hearts. Israel making the golden calf didn't did, didn't happen because nobody told them not to do it. So, so the reason they made the golden calf, it wasn't because somebody said, hey, don't make an idol. They had just been told, don't make an idol. And they did it. They had the information. Knowledge wasn't the issue. And when we are given a command, our sinful na- nature... Drifts towards breaking it like a moth to a flame. Now, let's look at how Israel breaks covenant with God through God's gifts. Look at verse 4. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 4. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods of Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Israelites surely seem to have a lot of gold, don't they? Where's this gold coming from? I mean, as slaves, did they have a bunch of bling, right? Was bling, is that work with gold? Does that have to be diamonds? But anyway, they got a lot of gold and they were slaves. They shouldn't have a lot of gold. And do they, they pass some kind of gold area where they're like a mining place when they're in the desert? How did they get this gold? They shouldn't have gold. They were slaves coming out of Egypt. They've been in the desert. They should not have gold. So where did they get it? Well, turn to Exodus chapter 12, verse 33 to 36. They got it from somewhere. Exodus chapter 12, verse 33 to 36. And you're going to see where they got the gold. Exodus 12 Verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So these plagues are piling up on them. Verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading balls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptian for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. They got this gold from the Egyptians. They didn't just get to leave. They didn't just get like, like, a, like a pass to get out. They plundered them. It was as if they defeated them in war, which in a sense they did. They just didn't fight. It was God fighting for them, right? But they plundered them and they took all of their gold. Israel was a nation of slaves, and they plundered the Egyptians' gold on their way out. So God gave them food, silver, clothing, and gold. And what'd they do with the gold? (laughs) They took it to break the, the first two commandments. They took God's gracious blessing and leveraged that to do exactly what he told them not to do. Imagine giving your wife a vacation to the beach for two. She says, great. I know just the guy to take. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's it's an adulterous thing. It, it's not just a mistake. And then if you get mad about it, it's like, sorry, I made a mistake. It's like, no, that's a bigger deal. That, that, that's shocking adultery, right? And, and this it's horrific. It's shocking betrayal. And this is why God uses the word jealous when talking about other gods. Turn to Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 through 5, when he talks about this idea of making other Gods Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 and 5. Exodus 20, verse 4 says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath there or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And he says something very similar in chapter 34, verse 14, right after this event, he says, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. We often see our sins as mistakes. Nobody's perfect, right? We don't need to see them that way. We need to see it as a shocking betrayal. We need to see it as adultery, adulterous adulterous betrayals that provoke our God to jealousy. And, you know, sometimes I think, this is in me, I assume it's in y'all, that, that you want to you, you seem normal, maybe even relevant to the world in some way that you're not totally checked out, that you're clued in. And sometimes in that, we, we give ourselves away in a way we shouldn't. We, we, we mingle with, with the world in a way that is, that is adulterous in God's sight. In James chapter four, we don't have to turn here, but in James chapter four, verse four and five, it, James is explicit with this. He says, you adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it says, that it it, to no purpose, that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? God is good and kind and gives us good things. And what do we do with those good gifts that he gives us? We make gods out of them. He gives us a good gift, and we take that good gift and turn it into a God, and we organize our life around it. Or as Romans chapter 1 says, we exchange the creator for created things. We want people to think about us a certain way. We're trying to manage the way people think about us. We, we want comfort. We want a measure of security. We organize our lives around making someone happy or, or, or something we make gods out of these things that are actually God's good gifts to us. we use God's gifts to commit adultery. Now, thirdly, I want to consider how Israel might have felt justified in breaking covenant in this way. So, uh, so Moses goes back up the mountain to, to meet with God. And he, and he takes longer than the Israelites expected. And they don't know if he's coming back or not. And, and at some point, I mean, you guys know this, you know, you've probably been in, there's, there's, there's some murmuring, there's some theories going on. And at some point, someone's saying, and probably a lot of folks are saying, like, look, he's gone and he's not coming back. Like, he, w- he should be back by now. He's not back by now. It's time for y'all to get your head out of the sand and realize we are in the post-Moses era. He's gone. It's time to move on. And what do you do if your leader is gone? Well, of course, you make a golden calf, right? I mean, it almost seems insane to do this. So the, this golden calf was supposed to be a symbol of the God that was bringing them out of Egypt. So, so Moses is gone. They don't really know what to do. Their expectations were kind of messed with. And, and so they, they know that God brought them out of Egypt and they have the Book of the Covenant. They have the Ten Commandments. But what they decide to do is they're going to they're kind of mingle this Egyptian tradition of, of, of idolatry, of, of making a golden calf, and they're going to worship that. So what they're doing is they're mingling the Egyptian culture and style of worship and what they did with what they've learned about Yahweh. And so there's this—so they felt justified because Moses has, has been a minute. He's, we don't think he's coming back. Uh, there's some ways to worship that we're good at. We know how to do this. So we'll kind of bring that, we'll kind of bring a little bit of what we learned from Moses, a little bit of what we learned from Egypt. We should have something pretty cool to bring to the table. And Moses isn't coming back. We don't have a leader. And so they probably felt somewhat justified in doing it. And they made, they made uh, burnt offerings and peace offerings like they did uh, when they confirmed the covenant. And so they have this kind of mingling in of Yahweh stuff with what they knew to do or thought was a good practice. Somebody was probably like, hey, you know, it's always helpful for me when we had a little something golden we could kind of direct our attention to. And so maybe the people would enjoy if we had something like, I don't know, a golden calf. That way we can all kind of focus in on on a thing that we can see. And people are like, yeah, that sounds good. I remember we did that. I really liked that when I was a kid, right? So there's just momentum going where they're just kind of justifying this idea of, of, worshiping the calf and it's mingled in and and look i, I think we do this a lot we, we take things that are that are that are ungodly and we kind of baptize them in maybe christian language or we kind of justify it with a verse like for example you can have a person and let's say they're a total workaholic neglecting their family and they would say i'm just providing for my family first timothy five whoever doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever so they, they're doing a bad thing, but they got a verse on it, right? And they're acting like the world, but they, they justify it with a verse. Or maybe a person who's obsessed with their body, uh, working out, trying to make their body look just right, but they justify, well, body's a temple, 1 Corinthians 6, God take care of it. Or parents who make their children the center of the universe and say, Ephesians 6, just trying to bring them up in the, in the discipline of the Lord, trying to focus on the kids. And look, I I realize I'm about to wade into controversial waters here, uh, and I hope it's not controversial, but what about the the anti-racism movement or conservative politics becoming a symbol of orthodoxy within the church? Look, Christians should be against racism, period, full stop. But we're against racism for different reasons than non-Christians because something else is central other than anti-racism. And when anti-racism becomes central, it becomes idolatry. And, and, and Christians should be against abortion, period, full start, full stop. But becoming a Christian doesn't mean becoming Republican because something else is central other than being Republican. And when conservative politics becomes central, it becomes idolatry. And we should not be more evangelistic about racism or conservative politics than we are the gospel. And if you've been more vocal about racism or conservative politics than you have been about the gospel, then perhaps those things have become central. They become idols, even if you can dress it up with Bible verses. And let me just be clear here. It's just that just because someone is vocal about it or says something about either of these things, we don't know what's in a person's heart. And so this is an outlawing that people can't talk and and talk about these things. And I don't think if I were to hear anyone speak that I can know what's in their heart, if if that's central for them. Somebody could be very vocal about either of these things and have a great heart that's centered on Yahweh and the gospel and the natural outworking of these things. But I do think we need to be concerned that sometimes the agenda that the world might have can kind of smuggle itself into the church, find a few verses, and commit idolatry, but never see it because we have a few verses to back it up, Right? So look, we just, it, it happens subtly, and it's justifiable. And we just have to be on guard about it because our sinful nature is deceptive. And we are really good at taking good things and making them central things and removing Yahweh from that. And if Yahweh is central, then you will upset some people in the anti-racism movement. And if Yahweh is central, then you will upset some people in the politically conservative side. Because you won't go far enough, then they want you to. Because Yahweh is central, and that's, wh- that's where you are. Everything works out of that, but nothing takes the place of Yahweh being central. And when we smuggle in good things, even godly things to become central, to become the lens through which we, see, we view God, we view the world, we view others, then we have made an idol. And this happens subtly, elevating things that are good to being central. And we need to be on guard against good things becoming central. And this is how sin works. It gets smuggled in through something good. Very rarely do do, do any of us think, I'm just going to do something sinful because I want to do something sinful usually there's some kind of good we're we're, we're reaching for. There's some way to justify it. And so just because we can justify it doesn't mean we should dismiss it as not being sinful. There might be, there's ways to justify sin. And sin can take God's gifts to us and make us use those gifts in ways that are like committing adultery against God and provoke Yahweh to jealousy. And sin works quickly. In fact, sometimes the more intent we are to resist it, the more intense the struggle becomes because our sinful passions are aroused by the law. So that should be enough to leave us really discouraged, right? And I always say, I've preached a good sermon. I've done my job. If everybody leaves feeling really bad about themselves, right? That's, that's the mark of a good preacher. No, I'm, I'm joking. But, but here's what we should know. In light of our condition, our sinful nature, there is encouragement for us. Consider Israel. They had one really good thing going for them. It was in the text that we read. Israel had one really good thing going for them. They had somebody going to bat for them. God was going to take them out. And Moses went to bat for Israel. The Lord said he was going to wipe them out and he was going to start over with Moses. Moses. Why didn't he do it? Because Moses went to bat for them. He prayed for them. He interceded for them. He prayed for mercy. And in verse 14, what do we read? The Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of. And like Israel, we have someone going to bat for us. It's not Moses, though. It's the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he, Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them. Moses pleaded for Israel, and it worked. Jesus pleads for us, and it works. Do you think of Jesus that way? Jesus prays for you. Jesus prays for you. Things that could have happened, maybe even should have happened, didn't happen because Jesus went to bat for you. So as you consider your sin, how deceitful and destructive it is, And look, I don't want to discourage people, but I hope I did build a case for for us having a bit of suspicion about ourselves, right? That while I think I'm more sinful than I realize, and I think I I tend to justify it, I I think it's in me worse than I realize that we can be suspicious of ourselves and maybe take a new covenant approach and look to Jesus who is praying for us, who is interceding for us. And what should we do when we feel overwhelmed and stuck in our sin? When we see the mess that we've made? We should go to Jesus. We should interrupt Jesus praying for us. Consider Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And hear this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So not only is Jesus praying for you, he is able to sympathize with you. The thoughts you have, the things you do, when he sees that, he says, yeah, I get that. I can sympathize with that. And therefore, since we are more sick with sin than we realize, and because Jesus is already praying for us and sympathetic to our condition, May we draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, again, we consider the Israelites and we see um, a lot of ourselves in them. They're prone to wonder, prone to hear a command and do the opposite, prone to justify their sin, Taking your gifts, do evil things with them, make other things central that take your place, and would you forgive us for these things? And would you help us to not get lost under this big, heavy pile of the law, but would you instead help us to look to Jesus and the gospel, the new covenant, where He's given us the law not externally but internally. He's given us a new heart, new desires. Would you have us to look to Jesus, the gospel, the new covenant? And would you change us and would you free us from the misery of sin? And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.